millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. In the mid-1990s, Donald Gray was a rising star in the football scene. He played for both the under-16 and 18 sides for Northern Ireland and his career had taken him to Scotland. In July 1996, he'd just finished the season with Irish league club Glenavon when he was subjected to a brutal attack that would not only end his career but also his dreams. In a so-called punishment attack, Carried out by the IRA, both Donal's legs were broken after a gang of masked men forced their way into his Newry home. Donal was the 400th victim of these so-called punishment attacks. Donal, you're very welcome on today's podcast. Thanks very much, Patricia. Thanks for having me. Donal, you grew up in Newry. Yeah. Born in 1977 during the Troubles. What was Newry like at that time? Well, growing up as a child in Newry, there was always... There was always, you knew what was happening around you. There was lots of bombs and shootings and and different things, but my life was just football from very early to to um, whenever, you know, as long as I can remember, it was just football, football mad. And it was soccer that you were, you were just fixated with. Who was your favourite Oh, I'm a Liverpool supporter. Yeah, and Celtic, obviously. <laughs> so, yeah. So that that was your favourite teams. You, I think you told me you had been playing from you were a toddler. Yeah, I played football since I was a toddler. Now I started playing for teams maybe under eights from from then upwards, just for local teams and stuff. You know. So football was just your life, yeah. and that was your love. I played for so many teams at different times and. At the same time, I was playing for I was t- playing for team in Belfast. I was playing for teams in Dublin, and in Newry. You know, it was just yeah, I I play. You know. So when did your talent start to shine through? Well, it was uh, during the summer. Um, maybe it was around thirteen or fourteen, fourteen, say. And a soccer school came to Newry, and it was run by a guy from Wales called Tony Williams. And he travelled all around the country just doing these soccer schools. And he eventually picked a team to go to a tournament in Holland. And I, I got on the team. So that's when I said to myself, oh, well, I'm all right if I'm making a team throughout the whole country, you know. So, yeah, that was my first real experience of 
travelling and... And what age were you then? I think it was 14 or 15, Brilliant. so, yeah. And that's when your career then started to rocket. You, were, yeah. you, were, you played for Northern Ireland, the international squad? Yeah, well, I, I got trials for the under-15s and I got to the last day and I wasn't picked, so I was devastated. But then they came around the next year and I was... I made the team then, you know, so that was good. Um, also playing in the Milk Cup in Portrush, Coleraine. So I played for County Down uh, two years in a row. So that was sort of your first uh, like professional style playing, you know, because it was you had team tracksuits and you were staying in a hotel and it was just wow, this this I, I like this, you know. And, and with the Northern Ireland squad, do, you know, were you playing in different parts of the world, or what? what? Yeah, we travelled all over Europe, um, playing. We, we we played against Austria, and and I can't remember who else was in the group, but we we were qualified for the European Championships in Turkey. So that's we we travelled there and. It was amazing. Just you were treated like royalty, you know, and it was... What was the dream, Donald? Well, the dream, the dream was to play professionally in either Scotland or England or anybody who would have me, really, you know. So that was that was, that was was it. Like, nothing else was in my mind, just... That was it. You were just yeah. football mad. It was your, your love, your passion. Nothing else mattered. And... You actually did go and play in Scotland. What age were you then? I was 17 when I left to, to play for Park Thistle. And, yeah, it, it, but I was only there for a year. But things moved very quickly when I got there. I started off playing in the youth team and played so, so many games in the youth team. And then I was in the reserve team. And then eventually you got a call up to to the first team. What was the feeling like when you got that call? You were on the first team. Unbelievable! Like it was, you're playing against your heroes. Some of them, you know. And uh, I remember one one time, I was in the squad to play against Celtic, and I love Celtic, you know. And these players were my heroes, you know. So my dad and my brother came over to watch that match. And I'm getting photographs taken with all the Celtic players and stuff, you know. And playing against them? Yeah, and the manager gave off to be says, you could be playing against these boys today, you know, so stop that. And how long did you stay in Scotland for? Well, it was there roughly about a year for a full season. And my mum died then and, and I come home and sort of... Just, uh, I didn't want to go back. It just hit me hard, and and and, and I didn't want to go back. And, and eventually, come, I never went back. You're just home, and you're being a normal teenager, yeah. going out, and and, and uh, I suppose with losing your mum, that's a huge loss in your life. And of course, you're going to lose focus for a bit. And yeah. you know, it's a big life change. And you know, that's your mum. Yeah. Well, it, it, I was the youngest, and it hit me hard. And it was just all over the place. I didn't know what to do or what to think. Or so yeah, I was I was just being a teenager, going out and partying and 
go in the nightclubs and... So Donald, take me back to the events that happened um, around that time, personally, with yourself. Well, I was, uh, I was playing away football for Glenavon and I was, I was just being a normal teenager going out and, as I say, partying and different things and... Uh, the rave scene was big then. The rave scene was big then, so there was a couple of good nightclubs, Armand, the arena and stuff, and yeah, it was a, it was like a whole new thing, you know. Wow, this is great. Yeah. So yeah, just doing that kind of thing, and and so, uh, so how did you come to the attention of the IRA then? Well, as I, um, I would say, now I was I grew up with loads. You knew who everybody was and what they were, you know, growing up. And I was I always got on with everybody. Never had any arguments with them or anything like that. So things started to change slightly in their attitude towards me. Like stop talking to you, giving you dirty looks as you're walking down the street. So you could the mood had changed. Because you grew up in a republic and a yeah. state Barcroft was an estate that basically was controlled by IRA. Yeah, everything. And so you noticed it when the mood changed, you know. But I didn't think that anything was going to happen to me, you know. I wasn't doing anything wrong for anything to happen, so that was never in a thought, you know. But then... Uh, they tried to to get a friend of mine. Now, the punishment beatings were getting more frequent, so there was people getting beat up every other day. So, you know, you, you did it did cross your mind then, oh, I hope this doesn't happen to me. Or, oh, and, and then you would think, well, maybe I'll get a warning first or something, you know. Mm -hmm. But nothing happened, and they tried to get a friend of mine the night before. And what um, was their reasoning behind that? Do you ever get a reasoning? Or? I never got any reason or never, they never ever came in contact with me apart from an ex-prisoner. Now he was inside at the time and he got out on day release or weekend release or something after the Good Friday Agreement. So he came and apologised but it wasn't on, on the behalf of the IRA, it was just more or less saying like he found out and it wasn't sanctioned, so it was just... This was the you know, the attack that was carried yeah. out, and it wasn't sanctioned. No. And so, um, going to that attack, uh, 10 o'clock, you're in your house? Yeah, I'm at home, and as I said, Drum Cree was happening, there was a lot of rioting going on, and a lot of hijackings. And the state I lived in was completely closed off uh, by hijacked lorries and vans, and all the entrances in and out were all blocked off, so you knew something was going to happen, you know. And was that to stop the security forces getting in? Yeah, I would imagine. Okay. So, but, um, so yeah, the mood was, was, you could, you could yeah, you could feel it, you know. So, as I said, they tried to get my friend the night before, and I was with them the night before, and, so if they really wanted to get me, I was there the night before, you know. So anyway, I went home that night, the next day, it was later on, 10 o'clock. And I was standing out the front uh, of the house and I could see a crowd starting to gather up at the end of the street. 
and I could recognise some faces and I knew something was going to happen, you know, just got a bad feeling. So I eventually went out onto the street and I was talking to two friends and uh, they kept passing, the IRA kept passing in a, in a car. And you, I says, right, they're keeping an eye on me, There's, something's going to go down here, you know. You knew so, you were being watched. Yeah. So when the coast was clear then, my dad was visiting a, a neighbour across the road. So when the coast was clear, I went into his house. And we, we sat there and I was afraid to say anything to my dad and I didn't want to, you know, it was maybe looking back, I should have. But anyway, um, I didn't want to say anything. And eventually we went to go home and when he opened the front door, there was 10, 15 of them standing outside my own house. And you could have heard a pin drop that night. It was so just silent. And they obviously heard the door opening and they all just turned round. And I looked and I just closed the door and I says, Dad, I'm, I'm getting done here. I'm getting done. And he's like, what? What are you talking about? Uh, within 10, 15 seconds, they were at the door. And they eventually got into the house then. Uh, they put a gun to my head, they put a gun to my dad's head um, and, and dragged me out into the, the front garden. And, and that's this. where you were attacked? Yeah. They used steel rods? They had iron bars and like pickaxe handles with nails through them. So baseball bats, I suppose any, anything that they could get their hands on really. Were these men masked? They were all masked, um, yeah, when they entered the house and in, in the garden and stuff, yeah. And they just attacked you all over your body? Yeah, from head to toe. Um, was the focus on your legs? The focus was on my legs. Now, I knew that from, from the start that there was, there was a lot of beating around the legs. Now, I did get beaten in the upper body, but... Mostly my legs, so they knew what they were doing. They knew what they were setting out to do, you know. And as this attack was happening to you, Donal, what was going through your head and did you feel any pain? I didn't feel any pain at the time. It just, it, you just go numb, your body just goes numb. But the only thought that was going through my head was, was football and, and never been able to play it again, you know. How long did the attack last? Do you have any idea? I think it lasted for around 10 minutes. 10 yeah. minutes? Were they saying anything as they were attacking you? Yeah, you're going to die, you bastard. Uh, call me a druggy bastard. Um, that's all they said. There was no nothing else, really. And then... I always remember just this word, right, disperse. And as, as just like that, they just walked away. Didn't run, didn't. And they called you a druggie. Yeah. So was there reasoning that you were no, involved in drugs? Or what was no, that about? I was, I was never involved in drugs. But as I said at the time, it was the start of the rave scene and... We dabbled in different things like ecstasy and stuff and going out and 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 raving, you know, and but never never involved in selling anything or anything like that. 
So, but it, it was it was like the attitude: if you're not with us, you're against us, and it, it's you're yeah, pitched against it's, each it's other, strange. you know, kind of thing, you know. I so mean, you were tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts. Good news: ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, it was, it was strange. You were left in that garden. I take it your dad come to your aid? Yeah, my dad was our... My brother eventually came after, I don't know, somebody must have told him, and he came and a few neighbours were there. Um, when did the ambulance arrive? Yeah, the ambulance never got there. It could have been two or three hours. You were in a garden, yeah. lying badly beaten for three hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had all the roads blocked, so the ambulance literally couldn't get in. So eventually they got in somehow. And yeah, I was taken to Daisy Hill then and transferred a couple of days later to the city hospital in Belfast. When did you realise that your legs had been so badly injured? Well, there was that much bruising and swelling, so the doctors didn't really... Well, they they knew that my legs were broke because of x-rays and stuff, but they couldn't really assess anything until all the swelling went down. So eventually I needed uh, some operations on my knee, and I was in plaster from head to toe, and, uh, yeah... When did the doctors eventually tell you then, Donald, that your legs were possibly damaged? Well, there was that much damage done to my left knee that he said to me, because I I, I was constantly asking him, will I be able to play football again, you know? So eventually he says, not at the level that you were playing at. So... What was it like to hear that, Donald? It's devastating, because uh, during school and all, it was just football, football, football. I wasn't focused on anything else. In careers class, you know, it, it was just what do you want to be when you when you leave school, and it was football, football, football. It was nothing else. How did your family console you during this? Because, I mean, that's your dreams nearly broken right in front of yeah, you. Yeah, it, it was hard for my dad... Um, because after it happened and I lost track of myself for a long time, you know. And it was very hard on him because he was going through his own thing because he was there, you know. So I don't, I have no idea. We never, ever talked about it. So I don't know what way he felt, you know. He had to deal with his own trauma yeah, as well. Yeah. I mean, when they were shouting at you in the garden that, that you're gonna, they're gonna kill you. Did she think that they were gonna kill you at any stage? You know, it took me years and years, and I never thought it at the time, but it took me years and years, and 
to when I thought about it then, and I say it's like I, only I was so fit and so strong at the time. If it had been somebody not as fit or strong, the, the would every bone in my body would have been broke. And I think that's what helped me at the time because they didn't hold back. You know, it was ten people with with weapons yeah. just beating you for ten minutes. Yeah. And so how long did you have to spend in hospital? I spent a few days in Daisy Hill before it was transferred and then it was uh, three and a half weeks to four weeks in the city hospital. And I was in <laughs> bedridden for, for most of that time. And meanwhile, the press heard about the attack on you and you're, you were on the front page of national newspapers yeah. and um, in the UK and Ireland and people were appalled the attack and it actually says in one UK national that you were the 400th victim of IRA yeah. punishment beatings 400th victim yeah I don't even know what the number is today but it's it's a lot more than that I know it's it's still and uh, these attacks still happen still happen yeah Paramal still carry them out and when you hear about these attacks in the news then Donald you know how do you feel it just brings everything back you know and uh, and you know, ninety nine percent of these attacks, people just don't deserve them, and it's it's true personal grudges than than anything else. Most of them, you know, and they they tell the public that it's drugs or something else. It's just a just a cover, like yeah, you know, so called punishment yeah. attacks. I mean, like you say, some of of these attacks, and in which well, I remember Andre Allen. In Bunkrana, he's from Derry. He lost his life right. during one of these attacks, and his family said this wasn't a punishment attack. This was a personal grudge yeah. carried out by a paramilitary. Yeah, and that's I would say most of them have that same same reason. The recovery, I mean, must have been very long. How long are you talking? Well, it took me. The injuries themselves took. Over a year for for to heal, not not properly, just to be able to walk again. It was a long time on crutches, and then eventually was able to walk again. But I couldn't bend my knee for well over a year. Your one of your kneecaps was completely shattered. Yeah. How was the pain? How did you deal with it? Oh, lots of painkillers, but. Um, yeah, as I said, the psychological damage was far more to deal with than the actual pain of the injuries, you know. And did you still have that hope, Donald, that you, you would go and play out as, in the field again? Yeah, it was mixed emotions, you know. It was like your fantasy land. You think that you could fully recover, but then you, you, you think then, no, listen, there's no chance. And I knew with the extent of my knee that I was never going to be able to play top-level football again. That was just... When the, did you kick a football again after well, it that? it was maybe four years, three or four years after the attack. And I started to play for a couple of local teams. And I, as I said, I literally gave up watching football for a long time and couldn't watch anything because I was seeing friends... And I was thinking what, what could have been, you know. But eventually I played for a couple of local teams and 
it sort of brought, brought good feelings back, you know. And I eventually got a bad injury playing for one of the, the local teams and, and that's when it stopped altogether. It's just that I think my body had been through that much that things were starting to fall apart, you know. Yeah. When did you come to the realisation that you had to give up your dream? Well, it was after, oh, it, so, it wasn't long after the attack, but with the extent of the injuries, I didn't think that I was going to play any kind of level again, you know, even Irish League level. I just wouldn't have been up. The, the recovery after a game was just, it was going into weeks. And so we would never be able to keep that up if, if I played for any Irish League team or anything, you know. How did you cope then with having to give up something that you were so passionate about and loved from, from your toddler? Yeah, really, really hard. And you try to forget about everything, you know, you block things out. And as I said, I, I didn't want to watch football. It, it just totally shut everything out, you know. I see now that you've got your Northern Ireland caps on the wall with your medals and yeah. everything. And I mean, f- going from not being able to watch football to having that on your wall, is it? Uh, d- does it get hard to look at sometimes? Or are you just proud like you should be of what you yeah, achieved? Yeah, I am. I'm very proud of what I achieved and when I was so young as well, you know. But then there is times where it brings different emotions and stuff, thinking about bringing the past up again. But I'm very proud of of all the medals and and caps and all, so yeah, it was it was great times, and that's the way I have to sort of think about it to to get over it, you know. And how do you cope? Because I know Donald, you you have said that you still suffer from the psychological effects of what happened. You have post traumatic stress disorder, and you know how has it been getting help for well, that? I, I never got help after it happened. And I remember going to the doctors and I used to get the same dream every every night. And I didn't understand what it was or why I was getting this. I remember telling my doctor at the time and he just shrugged it off. He sort of, no, oh, that happens, you know. And I never got help. He never... Um, I never went to see any therapists or anything. It's only recently, in the last 10 years, where I've been going to get help. And so, that's a big step. And yeah. it, sadly, in the past, there hasn't been that much for people. And you were, you were basically a victim of the troubles because you were, you were, you were attacked. By yeah. by a paramilitary organisation, do you do you look at yourself as a victim or? I do, I do sometimes. Um, yeah, I do, but it's hard to explain. You know. Look at how far you've came, Donald, and today is a big thing for you because yeah. you're actually sitting here talking to me, yeah. and you've told me that you haven't been able to talk about this to very many people, and that's a huge achievement. No, I never, I never talk about it um, to nobody, and I always, if it's brought up, I just brush it off, you know, and put on a, a brave face. But it hurts every every day, you know. And it's never too far away from your thoughts and. 
it's just very, very hard. It's the aftermath of the of what happened is far more to deal with than the actual injuries and, and the incident, you know. Do you think, do any of the people who attacked you that night realise what they have done to you? Oh, they know, they know, you know. Uh, I've, yeah, I've got anonymous letters uh, in the post in the past of telling me of certain people what they were talking about in bars that they were overheard saying and stuff, you know. About you? Yeah, about about the attack. And were these anonymous letters trying to help you in some Yeah, way? yeah, but <laughs> it just brought everything up again and uh, I never kept the letter. I threw it away. And it's just, that was just my way of dealing, dealing with things because there was no point trying to find out who it was. I had no idea, you know. You did give a statement to the police. Uh, you know some of the people that were involved, but that just wouldn't be something No, you, you could n- never talk about names or anything like that, but I grew up with these people. Some of them were friends. Do you ever see them anymore? Can Do they walk past you in the street? Yeah, listen, some of them talk to me now, and for years I never spoke to them. And I would just, you know, because a lot of anger towards them and you want you know what could I do to for revenge and stuff and it's just really chill yeah it does it really does and but as years went on then you know that you lose all that and you, you sort of settle down then but yeah I meet I meet them all the time not so much now because I'm not living in the town centre but yeah every day do you think is there any guilt there no, they don't care. What advice would you give to anyone who's struggling? I don't know who, I mean, you were the 400th victim in 1996. Like we've said, there's been more after that. You know, was there any advice you would give to someone who has been victim to these attacks? Yeah, um, talk about it. Get help, any help you can get. Because I went through for years with no help and trying to deal with it myself. And I just couldn't cope with doing that, you know. And just to not feel the shame because there's a stigma put on you from from getting that. And it's, you know, you know everybody's looking at you and they're thinking, what did he do? And it's that kind of stigma that... You feel shame upon yourself because you actually start to think then, what was it me? Did I, did I do something wrong? You know? So I know I never talk about it much, but it, it does help and it's it feels like a big thing off your shoulders and when you do eventually talk about it, you know? Honestly, Donna, I think you're very brave and I'm privileged that you've sat down and spoken to me about it. I know it's not easy reliving that that attack and, and like you say, the psychological scars are still there. I just want to wish you all the best and, I mean, I'm sure if, if anyone needs any help um, or needs to talk, that you'd be more than willing to, to yeah. speak to them. Yeah, yeah. As I said, it's, it's, uh, thank God it's nearly a thing of the past now and it, there's not so many. It still happens, but there's not so many as there was back then. 
but and there's a lot more help out there for people than than they think, you know. So I would urge anybody to to go and speak to people, doctors, anybody, friends, family. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.